This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss digestion from top to bottom with nutraceutical formulator, Dr. Gordon Chang. We'll learn about vaccine hesitancy with researcher, Dr. Eve Dubay. We'll find out about the benefits of a women's only running group with leader, Julie Meltzer. And lastly, we'll discover the health benefits of coffee with coffee roaster, Adam Pesci. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Plant roots function by absorbing mineral nutrients and water from the soil and also controlling their proper balance in the plant. This control is exerted by a specialized layer of root tissue called the endodermis. Researchers have discovered a protein that seals plant roots to regulate the uptake of nutrients and water from the soil. The discovery could help develop climate-proof crops that require less water and chemical fertilizers. Researchers from the University of Nottingham identified new components of the lingon barrier in plant roots and the specific function of the dirigent proteins, DPS, located in the root endodermis that control water and nutrient uptake. Their findings have been published in Science Direct. An international study led by the University of Grenada has identified for the first time the optimal number of steps at which most people obtain the greatest benefits and shows that the pace at which you walk provides additional benefits. The idea that you should take 10,000 steps a day originated in Japan in the 1960s, but had no scientific basis. Researchers have now shown that if we focus on the risk of dying from cardiovascular disease, most of the benefits are seen around 7,000 steps. An international study led by the University of Grenada has provided the first scientific proof for how many steps you need to take per day to significantly reduce the risk of premature death, 8,000. Given the average length of a human stride, 76 centimeters for men and 67 centimeters for women, taking 8,000 steps is equivalent to walking approximately 6.4 kilometers a day. Time-restricted eating, also known as intermittent fasting, can help people with type 2 diabetes lose weight and control their blood sugar levels, according to a new study published in JAMA Network Open from researchers at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Participants who ate only during an 8-hour window between noon and 8 each day actually lost more weight over 6 months than participants who were instructed to reduce their calorie intake by 25%. Both groups had similar reductions in long-term blood sugar levels. The study was conducted at UIC and enrolled 75 participants into three groups. Those who followed the time-restricted eating rules, those who reduced calories, and a control group. Participants' weight, waist circumference, blood sugar levels, and other health indicators were measured over the course of six months. I'll be joined by Dr. Gordon Chang in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. 
I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. And of course, he's a regular on the show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you doing, man? Great to be back, Jamie. I was just thinking of this is that time of the year, the Christmas season. And I know it's only November. But, you know, we start thinking about Christmas at this time of the year. And I know everybody's thinking about how much food they're going to consume. Yep. Uh, there's going to be overeating. There's going to be people who wish they can eat as much as they used to, etc., etc. And then there's always going to be people who are going to look at the food and say, oh, it is just going to play havoc on my, on my digestive, digestive tract. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I know. It's like for me. Like my, my weight ebbs and flows and like the end of the summer, early fall, I'm at sort of like my peak weight and fitness. And then it's a slow descent in, into extra weight as we go through the holidays. And, and like the reprieve doesn't come till I guess maybe Valentine's Day. But mm-hmm. so I, I understand exactly what, what we're talking about here. So, so let's sort of start with an overview. What do we need for a healthy digestive system? It's not so much about a healthy digestive tract. I mean, let's talk about what the digestive tract does to okay. start off with. Sure. Right? Now, we're going to have to do a Reader's Digest version of this because in all fairness, in 15 minutes, you can't cover the digestive tract in 15 minutes. Right? So let's see how far we can get and what we can, where we can reach with, with, this, with this particular topic today. Fair enough. Now, the digestive tract is an, op- it's an open tube that goes from the mouth and comes out of the anus, okay? And, but when I say an open tube, there's a lot of twists and turns and so on, but if you are able to stretch the digestive tract out, you can basically shine a light in on one side and the light will be coming out on the other side. So even though it's inside the body, it's considered to be part outside the body, okay? Yeah. Now, the, the digestive tract, the major purpose of the digestive tract, and people might might disagree, but it is so that you can eat stuff, break it down to get raw materials to rebuild tissue in your body. Okay, so the, the, usually the three food groups we talk about the, and the major food groups would be carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Right, and there's accessory nutrients like the vitamins, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's three things that the digestive tract does: is carbs, fats and protein. Now what happens is that in the digestive tract, contrary to popular belief, if you eat a piece of meat, for example, it, it doesn't, the body doesn't absorb the protein in the meat as protein. It, it has to break it down into amino acids, right? And then these amino acids are then absorbed through the mucous membranes of the digestive tract and gets into the bloodstream. The bloodstream then takes it to different parts of the body. The different parts of the body then takes it into their cells, 
and in the cells it makes new protein from the raw material. You, you know the comment people say, you are what you eat? Yeah. I, I didn't realize how true that was until you looked at what people eat because you can skew what type of materials you accumulate in your system. But I think I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there because when we go talk about carbohydrates, we have the same issue, right? Mm-hmm. The, um, carbohydrates are basically energy for for the cells. And what happens is, again, we, we the body doesn't absorb things as carbohydrates. It breaks it down into what's called simple sugars, which is glucose. Um, you might get ribose, etc., and that gets absorbed, and then the body rebuilds. All of, all of the carbohydrates that it needs in the body, all right? Same to do with fats. Now, back in the day, people said fats were a bad thing, but fats are not really a bad thing because if you look at all of your cells, the cell walls, is all made of fats. And if you don't have fats as raw material coming in, you're not going to have raw material uh, being made as fats, uh, I mean, to, to make into your cell wall, okay? So th- those are the, um, the, the, the major food groups groups that we talk about when we talk about what the um, digestive tract does. But we're also interested in things like vitamins, and the body has absorbed that. We have to, we're also interested in things like, like um, uh, minerals, which your body absorbs. And by minerals, I mean things like calcium, magnesium, which everybody thinks about. But, you know, there's also iron, there's also selenium, zinc, copper, etc. All those are necessary for the proper functioning of the body. So the body has to get all of these nutrients from the outside, and then it gets accumulated in the body. And then what happens is that once you have all these raw materials in the body, the body then says, oh, okay, we have the materials. Let's make, let's make whatever it is we're making, okay? Mm-hmm. But whatever we're making also is a function of what raw materials you bring in. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And the analogy I'll make is, let's say you want to build a brick wall, all right? And all you have in front of you is mud, and you don't have things like the cement, etc. So what does the body The body will make a brick wall for you, but it doesn't have the cement, so it'll stack the bricks on top of each other, but the wall won't be very strong. You need that cement. So the same thing with the digestive tract. You don't have the right types of material coming in, all right, it's not going to make good proteins, all right, or it might rub from pizza to pay for Paul, meaning that it'll steal protein from one source, break it down just so you can get the right amino acid to make the proper protein, right? Mm-hmm. So these are some of the things with the di- what the digestive tract does. Now, the digestive tract is made up of from the mouth, right, um, where you release enzymes to break down starches, and many starches are broken down in the mouth. That's why you chew, you get bricked on the starches. But the chewing process also allows the um, enzymes to get at the different particular bonds in carbohydrates, fats, and also proteins. Then it goes into the stomach, and in the stomach you have the acids, which also break down the protein bonds, so it exposes amino acids, which then get further digested as you go down into the small intestine and so on. Right? Same thing happens with carbohydrates and fats. So this, most of the digestion occurs really occurs in the small intestine. And then most of the absorption happens in the small intestine, and also some of it absorbs, um, material absorbed in the large intestine, also the colon. The colon is where everything um, accumulates, or the waste products that didn't get absorbed, so things like fiber, etc., 
um, which can't be absorbed, which cannot be digested, is excreted as, as fiber, right? Now, all these things are necessary for good health, right? Uh, and I haven't touched about things like probiotics or what the microbiome, et cetera, is, et cetera. And that's an, another complex thing. So needless to say, it's a very complicated system. Now, how does it affect us holiday time? I'm thinking of holiday time. A lot of us, you know, as we get older, one of the things that, that happens is that we don't produce the same amount of digestive enzymes as we were when we were a little kid or younger. And also because of that, we eat less, right? And sometimes whatever we do eat, it just sits there and it doesn't digest properly. So one of the things I suggest during Christmas season, etc., start taking digestive enzymes. Digestive enzymes are, great, are, are things that will help digest food. Now, people will say, oh, I take a digestive enzyme, and what they're doing is taking the proteins, which is good because it breaks down proteins. But you have to remember, you also have carbohydrates in your, in your diet, mm-hmm. and you also have fats. So you need something that will help break down fats and carbohydrates. And back in the day, I, I remember my when my parents were, were, were alive, right? Um, they used to take a, di- a digestive enzyme that breaks down fats, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of times it's when you take, when you eat too much fats, it just makes them feel, they can't break it down, so it just makes them feel stomach upset, etc. Mm-hmm. right? And I use the word stomach upset. Really, it's not really stomach upset, but it's in, um, they're not comfortable with their digestive tract. So what happens is the fats, the digestive enzymes of fats, right, helps break down some of the fats, and they feel a lot better. So what I'm trying to say is that if you take a digestive enzyme, make sure it has enzymes that break down fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. So you look for, for want of a better way to say, I call it a multi-digestive enzyme, right, that has all of those things. Right. You beat me to the punch. I was going to ask whether there's there's such a thing as an enzyme or an enzyme package that has all the different kinds. So that's oh, good yes. To know. oh, yes. Um, Omega Alpha makes a wonderful product called Multizyme, which has all of those things in there. But one of the things that you have to realize also about digestive enzymes, most digestive enzymes on the market today are not from animal source. They all come from bacterial sources. Mm. Right, uh, and uh, and what 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 happens with that is that proteins, for example, um, not every single protease will break down every single protein. Mm. Right, uh, let me use it as an example. We know here right, that the stuff on your head is made of, of a protein called keratin. Maybe your head. I don't have any left. Well, ahead, yeah. I'm, I'm not far behind you, Jamie. Trust me. <laughs> okay, that's why I said that. <laughs> anyway, but the hair on your head is made of keratin. And the, the, none of the digestive enzymes really break down keratin well, right? Not that we eat here. I was going to ask I'm you. I'm just using it as an illustration okay. about the efficacy of digestive enzymes. Got it. Right? So it's the same thing. Uh, digestive enzymes from um, bacterial sources, from fungal sources, from plant sources, will will digest pro- different proteins at different rates. Okay, mm-hmm. so what you need to do is to find a digestive enzyme that digests all the different types of proteins. Now, 
digestive enzymes from animal sources usually have broad spectrum, so it will affect it will digest most proteins. However, nobody wants to use digestive enzymes from from animals, right? So this is why we all use plant-based digestive enzymes or fungal-based digestive enzymes. But the catch with that is that not every single protease will break down every single protein. So what happens is that you've got to get a digestive enzyme that has several different proteases that break down different types of protein in your system. And the same goes for the things like the fats and the carbohydrates, right? Secondly, in the human body, digestion occurs at body temperature, which is, a, uh, which is 30, 32 Celsius, okay? Most digestive enzymes that we get from fungal sources and so on may not be optimally effective at, at 32 degrees centigrade. Right. So what we did at Omega Alpha was that when we got our digestive enzymes, we made sure that they were active at 32. Right. Because you know, have to remember, fungal sources, the enzymes are normally digesting at at room temperature uh, or at whatever temperatures in the environment. So they're right. usually not optimal for 32. So you've got to pick and choose your enzymes to make sure they're active at 32. Right. Last but not least. You've got to look for digestive enzymes that work at pH 7 or 8. Okay. And let me explain why I say that. As I, if you recall, I said most digestion occurs in the small intestine. Yep. Right? So in the small intestine, the pH there is roughly 7 or 8 in that, in that range. Right? And maybe even 8.5 or so. But it's in that range. Right? So if your digestive enzymes don't work in that pH regimen, you're basically wasting your time. Now, I know people will buy digestive enzymes and say, oh, you gotta have, you got to have a, a betaine HCL, which is a source of acid. But not really, because, again, the only reason you have acid is for digesting proteins in the stomach. Right. And really, the, this, the, in the stomach... Most protein is not a, not digested in the stomach, but also in the small intestine. What the acid does in the in the stomach is basically hydrolyze the proteins, so it allows the the bonds to be exposed to the enzymes in the in the small intestine, right, to to break it down. Things like fats and also things like um, carbohydrates are not affected by the acids in the stomach. Those are, are digested really in the small intestine. That makes a lot of sense. I know we've just touched the surface here. Do you want to come back next time and, and we'll elaborate more on digestive health? For sure. I, I think it's very important. People think about it in big terms, but you know, you've got to take it small chunks at a time. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me on board. That was Dr. Gordon Chang. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss vaccine hesitancy on the tonic. OMTO is back. Brought to you by ColdFX, CanPrev, and AOR. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique themed classes, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for our guests. And a portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to charity. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date. <laughs> 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Eve Dubay obtained her PhD in medical anthropology at Laval University. She's an invited professor in the Department of Anthropology at Laval. And since 2008, she's also a researcher in the scientific group on immunization at the Quebec National Institute of Public Health. Her research focuses on the socio-cultural field surrounding infectious disease prevention. She's particularly interested in vaccine hesitancy. Dr. Dubay is currently leading the Social Sciences and Humanities Network of the Canadian Immunization Research Network, funded by the Public Health Agency of Canada and the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dubay. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So, uh, for those who don't know, can you explain what is vaccine hesitancy and why is it a problem? So, vaccine hesitancy is quite a relatively new term in the public health discourse around vaccine acceptance, but we have heard it a lot during the COVID pandemic. It's a way to reflect that vaccine attitudes and vaccination decisions are not uniform, but can be across a continuum of behavior. So there's some people who are accepting all vaccine with confidence and there's other, a small minority in Canada who refuse all vaccines firmly. And in the middle, there's uh, people that we uh, label or name a vaccine hesitant. So this is a group uh, that for diverse reasons are unsure about vaccination, have doubts, they can accept vaccine, they can refuse vaccine, they can delay vaccination. And it's an interest for public health practitioners as it's a larger group. There's around 25 to 30% of Canadians that are vaccine hesitant, but this is a group that we can uh, motivate to accept vaccine. Why is it a problem if somebody is vaccine hesitant? We, and of course, this has been studied a lot with childhood vaccination. So there's been many studies that have shown that among parents who are vaccine hesitant, they can stop having their kids vaccinated. And we know that in terms of public health, uh, childhood vaccines are really effective to prevent outbreak. And there's been outbreak across the world, including in Canada, including in Quebec, where I'm based, of, uh, for instance, measles that have been linked with vaccine hesitancy. So with people that have delayed vaccination or refused some of the vaccine because of doubts, concern that could have been otherwise addressed by uh, some information, some counseling. Okay, so is there really a material difference between somebody who's, who's vaccine hesitant and somebody who is flat out refusing? Is there a real difference? Yes, we often, and in my work as an anthropologist, I do a lot of interviews with people that have different levels of concerns and doubt about vaccine. And those were like, and I don't like labels, but those who are anti-vaccine or strongly against vaccine, it's almost impossible to change their views. They have firm beliefs, they have uh, strong views. Uh, it could be linked to religious belief, but it's, and, and when you do speak with these people, they try to convince you that uh, vaccines are bad and that you should yourself stop vaccinating yourself or your kids. While vaccine hesitants are more, uh, it, it could be like LT skepticism with regards to recommendation. Uh, it could be uh, different fears, fears of adverse 
events, for instance, or it could be um, views about disease that the thinking that disease has disappeared, so there's no need to vaccinate, but it's less of a, like a strong position against vaccine. Are, are there cultural factors that come into play? Because like, we are, in large part, a nation of, of immigrants and people coming from all over the world who, who may have different sort of cultural approaches to the idea of vaccination. Do you find that? Yes, we have saw that. Uh, what I've observed is that among newcomers who often have very difficult path of life and uh, very different health issues within their country of origin. They usually are keen to accept vaccine and think that it's great that it's so easy in Canada to be vaccinated. Right. Um, but there's other group that for different cultural views about health and disease or religious reasons are more hesitant. And for instance, I do a lot of work among Inuit in northern Quebec, and because of um, structural racism, the legacy of colonialism, there been there's an hesitancy with regards to vaccine that is linked to these treatment that these groups have suffered and are still suffering from. This may be a loaded question, and you may not even have the data on this, but I'm curious. It seems to me that a lot of the vaccine hesitancy or refusal is politically tied. Is there a certain intellectual stance or even IQ issue to those who are? No, no I'm, I'm, you know, like I, I'm actually I'm pro vaccine and it, it flummoxes me when people come up with these arguments. So I'm wondering, I mean, like, is, is, is there more to it than that? Or, or perhaps you don't even want to go there. I don't know. I'll, I'll let no, you answer. No, it's, it, and it used to be like a U.S. question question yeah. and it, it, there's clear studies from the u.s where if you're a republican you're more vaccine hesitancy while right. if you're a democrat you're more prone to accept vaccine uh, prior to the pandemic this was not an issue in canada so most political parties were behind public health and behind uh, vaccination but of course during the um the pandemic, we observed political divide with regards to public health measure, including vaccination. And this association is new uh, right-wing parties that have become like rallying against vaccine as a way to, I guess, motivate their political basis. So there's this is coming. This is an issue now in Canada as well, where if you identify strongly with a group, you might become vaccine hesitant when, when before that vaccine were not on your radar. That being said, are there are there legitimate concerns to vaccines? For those who of are hesitant, like I, I mean, you know, I, I can read. I, I'm not a doctor, but I can read when there are risks to certain vaccines, right? So, so not all hesitancy. Uh, is necessarily grounded in voodoo. Like some of it is is intellectual, isn't it? Yes, and and of course it's perfectly normal to ask questions and to be unsure. And and there's vaccines like any drug can I can have uh, adverse events. Uh, so it's there's real um, risk in, in between quotation associated with vaccines. But often what we see is that these risks are inflated, and when people are looking at at vaccination, they tend to forget that disease can be bad as well. So if you're right. sick with measles, you can be pretty in pretty bad shape. If your kids come down with measles, you could be quite sick. So that's the part of the equation that is often for forget when people are like 
thinking about vaccination. So ahead of this interview, I did a little bit of research into sort of the categories of hesitancy. And what I learned, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there are concerns, complacency, and convenience. Assuming I'm right about those three, can you elaborate? Yes. So there's, it's called, it's a simple, simplified model, because of course there's a a variety of reasons why people are hesitant and some are linked with people having good reason to be hesitant. Uh, but we simplify the determinant of vaccine hesitancy with this 3C. So complacency is the uh, perception that disease are no longer uh, an issue, that you now need to bother going to get your vaccines. Yep. Confidence is a key determinant and it's confidence in the safety and efficacy of vaccine, but also confidence in public health experts, the government that are uh, in charge of vaccination services. And the, and the final C is convenience, um, and it's linked with um, access to vaccination services and health services in, in general. So the way you're being treated at the clinic by the nurse, the physician can influence uh, your perception of vaccine and other medical treatment as well. I would imagine, you know, the, the COVID situation really sort of impacted people with concerns and complacency, right? Because, you know, after taking all the vaccines, you know, however, however many boosters, you know, and, and now that there's no more shutdowns, I'm sure there's a cohort of people out there who think, okay, more shots aren't really necessary. And similarly, the way we had such a lack of information at the beginning where people were just kind of feeling their way through what is this virus and, you know, how does it really impact us? The science, you know, people who are science grounded were, were changing their opinions as more information came out, which I think would be confusing to, to an average person. Would you agree? Yes, of course. And, and we saw it with the uh, what I'm doing. I was doing regular surveys in Quebec during the pandemic, and we saw a real decline in vaccine confidence around the Omicron wave. Yeah. Because people were told, get your two doses and then the pandemic will be over. And right. of course, there was this new variant that uh, for, for vaccine were less effective against it. And then you need a third doses and then you need frequent doses. So that really polarized opinions and people with good reason could have been frustrated by saying, I, I did my part and then here we go again. So that's unfortunate. And what we observe in our studies in Quebec is that there's a a difference that is really linked with age. So the younger you are, the less vaccine confident you became with. And so there's an impact of the pandemic uh, for which we still need to do more studies to be able to understand it correctly. But it definitely impacted views about vaccines. Totally understandable. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and helping us uh, clear up this issue. My pleasure. That was Dr. Ev Dubay. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss a new women's running group on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. 
Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Julie Meltzer is the club director of 261 Fearless Club Toronto. She works as a professional organizer, and she's been a recreational runner for the past 20 years, completing nine marathons, 20 or more half marathons, and countless shorter distance races. Welcome to the show, Julie. How are you? Good. Thank you, Jamie. I'm perfectly fine. How are you? Well, I'm never perfectly fine, but I'm, <laughs> you know, by, by modern standards, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. So I used to be a runner until oh. I partially tore my Achilles, so I can't run anymore. But I can tell you how much I enjoyed it and how great it was for both my physical and mental well-being. And I'm sure you feel the same way, right? Yes, I do. hundred percent. Yes. And I've never regretted becoming a runner and knock on wood, I've never had any major injuries. Well, so. that, that's good. So you're, you're one up on me. So, <laughs> so, so tell me what is 261 Fearless? Ah, okay. So at a micro level, 261 Fearless Club Toronto is a female specific running community that focuses on the fun, social and non-competitive side of running. We provide a safe, friendly, and fun environment for women to run together once a week. At a macro level, 261 Fearless, Inc. is a global charity working on projects that enable women to take personal responsibility for healthy and sustainable change within their lives, offers education, and running opportunities for women to discover their self-worth and potential. We unite and support each other within our global social running network, encouraging healthy living, a positive sense of self, and fearlessness. Why, why was 261 Fearless founded? Story of 261 Fearless began on the streets of Boston in 1967 when a young Catherine Switzer, wearing bib number 261 in the Boston Marathon, was attacked on the course by the race director simply for being a woman. In this moment, she decided to face her fear and keep running. Step after step, mile after mile, she felt growing confidence and became the first woman to officially complete the Boston Marathon. Prior to that, women were not allowed to enter the Boston Marathon. So Catherine's 261 Fearless moment inspired Edith Zushman decades later to establish a global women's running network that helps women to find their own 261 Fearless moment. Is there a specific mission of 261 Fearless? Uh, Yes. The mission of 261 Fearless is to educate and support all women to become more confident, to use their strong voices, and to make their own decisions as to what they want to achieve within their lives. We empower women through running, education, and socialization. We are a non-competitive running group who welcome women of all abilities. So, so what makes 261 different from other run clubs? Like if, if somebody's interested, what, what is unique about 261? Uh, so 261 Fearless is different than other run clubs because it is founded on the principle that women can do whatever it is that they put their minds to. 
with the help of other women, be it coaches or other members, women are empowered to overcome their fears and live their dreams. Our clubs support women in becoming active and taking their first running steps in a non-judgmental and non-competitive environment. Our aptly named Meet Run is a women-only group run, which focuses on the social side of running, which most clubs in Toronto are focused on the competitive um, time-based system. So we don't do any of that. But you do run marathons, right? I do personally, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what inspired you to start the Toronto branch of 261 Fearless? So 261 Fearless combines the two aspects of my life that I love, which is running and the camaraderie of other women. So in my own life, I have been blessed to meet a multitude of empowering women through running. My running journey tentatively began in 2003. While I enjoyed the health aspects, I found that I was running alone most of the time, and thus I wasn't fully committed. Um, it was in 2007 that I made the decision to co-instruct a half marathon clinic at my local running store. I am not an extrovert by nature, so to say I was nervous is an understatement. Uh, it turned out to be the best decision I ever made. It was there that I instantly clicked with a group of women who are still my friends today, and over the years, I have continued to instruct other clinics, and my roster of female friends has grown exponentially. It's been 16 years since that first clinic, and while not everyone I met back then continues to run, that initial spark of friendship hasn't diminished. And I know that my life wouldn't be as enriched as it is if it wasn't for running. I am continually inspired to connect a new generation of women to the life-changing benefits of running, and that is what inspired me to start up a 261 Fearless here in Toronto so I could continue that spark, continue that inspiration on a whole new generation. So 261 is for women of all capabilities, right? I presume you have newbies and you have yeah. people who are, you know, have a little more experience running. So are, are, are there just one type of class or are there different types of, of running groups? Like, can, do you um, move up as you get more experience or are the distances yeah. change? Everything is pretty much laid out. Everything is the same each week. It's because it's not based on competition and it's all about social aspect and getting women out there to be active. So um, a typical 261 meet run looks like this. So we gather at Ramsden Park here in Toronto every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We start by doing a few easy warm-up drills and move on to a fun interactive game where we can be silly and let loose. Then we head out for a 20 to 25 minute run, which is approximately three kilometers. Then we finish it off with a proper cool down. We do have two certified coaches leading the meet run, which can accommodate for different pace groups. Since we aren't competitive, if a woman wants to walk, we don't discourage her or force her to run. It's all about being active and being social. We welcome women of all ages, skill levels and backgrounds. But as far as there being an upward movement of more distance and better timing, that is not something that happens with us. We stick to the plan every single week, and it's more about having fun while being active than anything else. Do you run through the rain and snow? 
Everyone always asks the question, and yes, we, me, myself personally, yes, I do. Yeah. And our intent is to run 52 weeks out of the year with 261. Um, a little snow and rain doesn't hurt anybody. Um, it's not pleasant all the time. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, if you, if being a fair weather runner, I get it, but you'll be so much more happy if you persevere and make it through. Uh, you know, I used to run through the winters when I could run, but mm-hmm. you, you really need the right apparel, right? Like, I mean, it can get really cold. And I, I don't know whether you run with cleats or, you know, whether you have, you know, the extra thin but thermal stuff. But, I, you know, like if even if you're not competing, you, you have to make sure that you're properly suited up, right? Yes. Exactly. And that's one of the things that we will be talking about going into the winter season. We'll be focusing on the proper gear to wear, the proper footwear to wear, the proper socks and all of these things. Uh, It's not just a matter of, oh, come out and have fun for an hour and then go home. We actually intend to educate people about the proper way to do running and the proper clothes to wear and how to be safe about it. Okay, when when you describe the group, you, you know, you you mm-hmm. describe it in terms of it being broader than just a running group. So, so mm-hmm. how has it impacted the lives of women or, that you've seen and, and you you've witnessed? The whole goal of 261 Fearless is to empower women all over the world by offering business training, coaches training, education talks and mentorship. When I started with 261 Fearless, I had to go through business training in order to become a club director. It is actually a nonprofit, so I had to go through all of that. I had to create a business plan, something I never would have done had I not been offered this opportunity. So for me, that definitely is a great part of it. We, When we became coaches, somebody came here for two days and they imparted all of the knowledge and the protocols and policies for 261 Fearless, and we were immersed in all things 261. We got the proper coaching. Again, something that, you know, it, it sounds easy to be like, hey, yeah, just uh, I'll, I'll trot you around Ramsden Park for three kilometers. But there is a lot more behind it that being a part of the 261 Fearless family, you get by being a part of it. Um, so, it's and you know and it breaks down geographical barriers and um, socioeconomic barriers. It brings together a lot of different women in a lot of different scenarios, and it just focuses on being healthy. Time for one last question, and that is: if we've inspired our listeners to join your meet group, what should they do? We are always up to meet new women, and encourage anyone who is interested in joining us by contacting me. For more information, via our Instagram page, the handle is 261ClubToronto, or you can email me at 261ClubToronto at gmail.com. There is no cost to join. There is no obligation to come each week. All you need is running shoes and a positive attitude. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Julie Meltzer. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the health benefits of coffee on The Tonic. The Big Carrot Community Market is celebrating 40 years in business. They've been supporting organic, local, non-GMO, and fair trade since 1983. Celebrate with them on Saturday, November 18th. Enjoy gifts with every purchase while supplies last. And complimentary carrot cake and apple cider, too. The Big Carrot. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Adam Pesci is the president of Reunion Coffee Roasters, a Canadian family-owned specialty coffee roaster. He's on a mission to use coffee as a force for good in the world. Through his work, he has continued to foster long-standing partnerships with producers and farmers who share this commitment. Reunion has a bullfrog-powered roasting facility in Oakville and a flagship cafe on Roncesvalles in Toronto. To learn more about his business, you can visit www.reunioncoffeeroasters.com. Welcome to the show, Adam. How are you? Good. Thanks very much for having me. Candidly, I have coffee every day. I've got a fancy schmancy machine at home that makes delicious coffee, but I'm good for one cup a day. Okay. And I know that's not bad for you. Nope. But you're here to tell us today that there's actually some health benefits to coffee. Is that right? Loads. I think coffee is so good, so delicious, and so common that people just assume that it's bad for you. So I like to spend a lot of my time just dispelling those myths. The big one, obviously, is caffeine. Everybody's afraid of caffeine. A little bit of caffeine's fine for you. You drink one cup of coffee a day, that's about 120 to 150 milligrams of coffee. You can deal with at least three times that without really having any kind of negative impacts on your health or just your your day-to-day you know, function. I think it is important to remember caffeine is going to keep you up at night. You don't want to be having your coffee too late, potentially. That's if, if you're one of those people that can't metabolize caffeine quickly. Caffeine's got about a six-hour half-life. So if you have a cup of coffee at 8 o'clock in the morning... By the time 8 o'clock at night rolls around, only about 25% of that's left in your in your system. So it should not impact your sleep that much. But yeah, it's a, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful beverage that, that I, I love. I've been around it my entire life. And so, you know, for me to <laughs> realize over the years and all these continuing studies that it is actually just really good for you is it was a nice little miracle for me. So you've explained why it isn't bad for you, but why is it good for you? There's still a lot of science to be done in terms of the why, but the the studies show that coffee has the ability to help prevent multiple types of cancers. So liver cancer, kidney, uh, gastrointestinal, um, urinary tract, uh, all, of, all of those very good for keeps keeps you flowing, keeps you moving. Great for your heart. Coffee helps your body produce adrenaline, which, you know, gets your blood pressure going, gets your heart moving, gets your blood pumping and helps prevent uh, degenerative brain diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. One of the biggest factors in that is is that coffee is, for most North Americans, the number one source of antioxidants in our diets. Antioxidants are very important. They help prevent cellular breakdown through oxidization. You know, the fact that coffee is the number one source, coffee and tea, are the number one source of antioxidants in our diet probably says a lot about how few vegetables and fruits yeah. that most people are eating. And right. that's a story for another day and a different kind of expert. But yeah, so coffee is great for that. And that is part of, you know, how coffee helps prevent cancers and the degenerative diseases as well. And that's good to know. And so some of us seem to be able to metabolize coffee a little bit better than others, right? Like I'm one of those people I can have coffee at night and I'm okay. I can still get to sleep. Me so too. I, so I'm lucky. We've been blessed. Yes, we are yes. blessed. <laughs> but but I know, for example, my wife can't do that. And I have good friends who stop drinking coffee at noon because they metabolize it differently. Yes. Can, can we explore that for a bit? It's still relatively new science and, and new findings, but it's, it's basically a gene. Those of us who can metabolize coffee quickly, it's a bit of a, a mutation or a gene that we have um, that's developed that basically... Uh, helps us break caffeine down quicker. 
like I say, there's still not a there's still not a ton of detail on what that on how that exactly works. But some yeah, some people just have a very high sensitivity to caffeine. I think a lot of there is a, a psychosomatic nature to that as yeah, well. As, I agree. Uh, you know, we we've seen it. It anecdotally, at least, someone has a cup of coffee. It can be regular coffee. It can be decaf. They get hyper. Right. It's it's just a, a thing that people do because it's believed that caffeine gives you coffee and caffeine give you energy. I, I once did an espresso tasting where we were given like six or seven espressos to taste, sure. you know, the various flavors. And and I, like an idiot, downed all of them. Yeah, that's and, a rookie then, mistake. And then I, <laughs> I had jitters. I had jitters not only for the day. I had jitters for the next day. So I can metabolize the caffeine. Yeah. But but I think if you have too much coffee, I think, you know, you're going to get those jitters. Yeah. So as a... A coffee drinker, a coffee lover, a coffee buyer. Yeah. Uh, like a, perf- you know, it is a. You a have to perf- spit it out, I presume. Uh, well, right? yeah, it is a, um, a challenge on a daily basis to m- to measure my intake. Yeah. So, yeah, when we taste coffee for the purposes of buying and testing, you know, we test every batch of coffee we produce. We spit it out every time. It's just a matter of good practice not to yeah. just completely, you know, douse ourselves in caffeine. But, you know, I can drink four or five, six coffees in a day not have any trouble sleeping. What I do notice, though, is if I'm not eating and drinking water, yeah, then I've got a problem. Like your heart can start to race. You know, you're yep. you start to feel a little light in the head if you're not drinking enough water and eating during the day while you're having coffee. So for me, as a as a professional coffee drinker, there you go. The diet's very important. Let's talk about the different types of coffee and how they might impact you. Sure. Well, so you said you have a, a fancy yeah, espresso machine. I have, right? I have a jura. I, I have a jura. Jur- okay. So, uh, you know, again, it's one of those common myths to, that that often uh, I get asked about is there's this there's this um, sort of mistake that people make likening a shot of espresso to a shot of alcohol, whereas right. a cup of coffee is like a glass of wine or a beer. In terms of caffeine content, not the case. So caffeine takes time to extract out of coffee. Coffee's got literally hundreds of of, uh, organic compounds in it. It's the most complex beverage in the world, bar none, you know, significantly more complex than wine, though we're just not, uh, most people aren't as good at tasting those complexities. It's a challenging thing to, to, to do. And there's so many ways you can screw up a cup of coffee. Yep. So it's, it's a difficult thing to, um, to quantify, but there's hundreds of these organic compounds in coffee and, you know, caffeine being a part of that mix. Uh, one of the things we do know is that caffeine takes time to absorb. So when you're extracting a shot of espresso, you do that 25 seconds, approximately yep. most of the time, a good shot of espresso will take about 25 seconds to pull, it's going through a metal filter, which is not as good as a paper filter, but it's doing it so quickly that the caffeine doesn't have time to absorb. So the caffeine content of an espresso is, you know, about two thirds maybe of a cup of coffee. Right. Uh, so and the other factor there is the the um, the roast of the coffee. So a darker roast of coffee, uh, uh, you know, uh, for us, we roast our lighter coffees sort of a nine, 10, 11 minutes, darker coffees, 12, 13, 14 minutes. That time... What you're basically doing is roasting out the moisture. You're roasting your 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 um, uh, caramelizing sugars. You're yep. you're you know creating proteins in the coffee or releasing them. And through that, what also happens though is as you're letting that moisture escape, the caffeine basically is going with it. For lack of a better oh, term. Oh, so so darker roasts have less caffeine. <clears throat> Correct. Yeah. So the lighter roasts, lighter the roast, the 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 higher the caffeine content. Now the other factor is ter- terms that. Most people probably know but don't understand what they mean, which is the difference between Arabica 
and Robusta. Yep. So Arabica, high-grown, delicious specialty, great coffee. It's what if you're if you're going to a, a cafe, most cafes will be serving you 100% Arabica coffee. There's some Robusta in, say, Italian espresso roasts. Um, that that flavor, that kind of bitter, darker um, uh, flavor, is is typically robustas. So robustas are robustas are lower grown, um, and they have a lot more caffeine in them. And the reason is is because caffeine grows naturally in coffee to protect it. Um, so uh, the lower grown the coffee is, the more it's going to be sort of susceptible to. So the the higher the the lower the lower grown, the more caffeine it has to build up more protection. Right. One of the like coolest things I ever saw was on this coffee farm in Brazil. They were doing all this experimentation and, you know, because caffeine, lower caffeine intake, uh, you know, is something that a lot of people are thinking about. They were really trying to develop a lower caffeine Arabica coffee. Right. And they did all kinds of, you know, splicing and they were, they were doing genetic modification and they got to a point where it was almost a zero caffeine coffee grown on the tree. So no external process needed to, happen oh, wow. to take the caffeine out. Sure enough, two years later, that same tree, caffeine was back. It was like Jurassic Park. Nature found a way. Caffeine wow. came back. It was very cool. Very disappointing for them because they spent a lot of money doing that development. But from a just from a coffee nerd standpoint, it was very cool to see this like that caffeine's meant to be there. And so decaf's its own thing. A lot of the same factors that make coffee really good for you exist still in decaffeinated coffee. It's just that you don't get the benefit of of the caffeine, which does have which does have benefits. Caffeine's not all a bad news story. Okay, we have time for one one last quick question, and that is: Does it matter where the beans come from? No, no coffee. I mean, coffee's grown, you know, between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn across that sort of that that tropic belt. Um, high grown, low grown. There are going to be differences in the caffeine content, but not in the general health of the coffee. The the best thing that you can do, you know, is is drink your coffee as unadulterated as as possible. So I'm not, I you know, I am a a, a coffee lover and and purveyor, and I, I'm still, you know, I drink milk in my coffee. I sometimes I'll put sugar in my coffee. That's a treat for me. Yeah. The best thing you can do for to make sure that you're getting the health benefits of coffee. Without the downside, is just not adding calories to it, right? Coffee has yeah. coffee has no no calories in it. Um, there's this, you know, the one of the things we tend to think about coffee is that it gives you energy. It actually doesn't give you energy. It just prevents adenosine reactors that you have in your brain from making you feel tired for a period of time. So yeah. Adding calories to your coffee is the only thing that you can do to make it unhealthy, basically. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Total pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Dr. Eve Dubay, Julie Meltzer, and Adam Pesci. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Bussin wishing you a healthy and happy week. 
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.